You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this, this is this, The Hour. You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour. With Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to The Hour. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. The Hour is RA's monthly blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. On today's show, we spend time with Flying Lotus at the UK premiere of Royal, his debut film, and also hear from the Salad Fingers creator David Firth, who's become something of a filmmaking mentor to Flylo. Matthew Benjamin, who you might know as Bushwhacker or Just B, tells us about his darkest days in the grips of drug addiction and his slow road to recovery. And Patrick Fallon finds out how a grimy corner of Brooklyn was transformed into an exciting hub for New York radio and the local music community. But first, each month we ask five people from across the dance music industry the same topical question. This month, in light of the chaotic political situation that so many of us find ourselves in, we asked, how is club music political? First up is Forrest Usyk from Surefire Agency and Trip Metal Festival. Well, one of the most exciting aspects of club music is its ability to live in the underground, outside of so-called normal society, where people can hopefully regulate themselves so that someone else doesn't have to step in, like the cops or whatever. People can consume what they want, they can participate for however long they want. The experience is considerably more broad than a lot of other underground experiences. And without doing anything completely stupid to yourself or dangerous to another human being, you can have all the freedom in the world. Electronic music typically comes at a higher price, so you have an economy that lends itself to higher production values in underground spaces. And in all these ways, there's not really anything like it in any other genre or medium for people in the same age group. Especially now that we live in a time where you can't help but find out about all the terrible things going on in the world more quickly and in more detail, you can ask yourself as a promoter, do I want to provide escapism or can I also provide something else? And for me, escapism stopped being enough. And this is where that strange economy of electronic music can come into play. Because if you can cut into profit and redistribute that money to a cause, where will you put that money that makes the most sense to your community and in turn lengthen the longevity of your work? Here's Dr. Luis Manuel Garcia, RA contributor and lecturer at Birmingham University. There are lots of ways that um, music can be political, including electronic music, despite the fact that it often has no lyrics um, or uses sound samples, especially verbal sound samples that have been um, processed in various ways to make words unintelligible or barely intelligible. But despite all of that, I think at a very general level, music tends to reflect either to reflect reality in a realist way for some artists or to reflect a reality that an artist, uh, you know, like a possible future that's desired or for that matter, a possible future that is feared. At the same time, music is also uh, something that speaks to not just life experiences, but to relationships, to belonging in various forms, um, social belonging, as well as, you know, sort of closer familial belonging. It points as well to um, sort of cultural identities and subcultural identities and, you know, our sort of um, families of choice versus, you know, families uh, that, that we might be attached to by blood and so on. And through all of these ways that music can express attachments of various sorts, that's already political again. Um, even if it's not the kind of politics that gets listed as such, as far as party politics and electoral politics, um, you know, the, all those dynamics of our lives have real important political uh, 
connotations or consequences. Katagina from Annex Agency. Even if you look at the whole lineage of club music or underground club music and where it comes from and um, what social circumstance those musics were kind of created, that lineage is very political. If you think about Detroit techno and underground resistance, Juan Atkins, and the kind of um, articulation that it gave to the ideas of a different future, of a transformed society. You see that tradition carried over into very kind of fresh sounding music cultures of today. If you think about labels like Non or Nafi or younger music cultures that are focused on inclusivity in the club spaces but also on the stage, that tradition is clearly carried over through sampling vocals, through sampling voice, through sampling political speeches. You can use sound as a weapon. It's very interesting to look at the dance floor and think about whether you can fully create a dance floor that would be representative of society at large. And whether or not that's possible is a completely different question, it's a completely different point. But that that should be attempted is a really important thing. I think if, if we look at how grime parties in London are being continually shut down by the establishment, if you look at the social circumstance of techno parties in somewhere like London, then you have to ask yourself the question how far that situation, that social situation is removed from the situation that created that music in the first place and how the ideas that allowed for that music to be created and exist, how they're kind of not being honoured in a sense. If you see a club that the dancer is predominantly middle class, predominantly white, predominantly male, then there's some element of understanding of that music culture is missing. Here's Susie B, co-founder of Free Rotation Festival. For me, dance music's political in the way it brings people together from different backgrounds. It creates an environment where people feel connected despite their differences. The music and the culture can really help us believe in a more equal and more compassionate society and to feel a sense of community, often with people we've never even met before. There's something so special about that feeling of collective consciousness when everyone on the dance floor really connects through the music. It's really powerful and it's something that's always been a huge part of the dance music scene. It's what got me into dance music in the first place. I remember noticing how people would dance with everyone around them and that often the DJ is at the same level as the crowd, so we're all sharing the experience together. It's more important now than ever, because now the human race and our environment are at a crisis point. I think dance music has an important role to play in helping people to imagine a fair and empathic society and to become a connected human family. And finally, Will Lynch, RA's associate editor. One way that club music is political is it has a way of harnessing a political moment. Um, in fact, some of the most famous rave scenes over the decades have had a really strong political dimension. Uh, something like Berlin in the early 90s is not just famous because of how good the music and the parties were, it's famous because in that time, techno music embodied this political moment of the wall coming down and the country being reunited. Dmitry Hegemon, the founder of Trezor, had this line that without Gorbachev, there'd be no techno, um, which kind of shows the, the link between the two, I guess. This is the hour from Resident Advisor. I'm standing on the corner of Nassau and Banker Street in Brooklyn at the north end of Williamsburg, just before it becomes Greenpoint. There's a lovely view of the Manhattan skyline down past the East River and an old brick church across the street. 
Had I been standing here just a year ago, I'd also see a fenced-in lot filled with an abandoned RV trailer and other piles of random junk. It was an eyesore in this otherwise scenic corner of North Brooklyn. But since February of this year, this small, triangle-shaped space has become something more like a public park, where locals come for coffee and tourists take in the view and listen to the eclectic music coming from a black customized shipping container. This is all because of a grassroots project spearheaded by a small crew of Brooklyn music lovers, an online radio station called The Lot. Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Lot Radio. We are here with another episode of uh, Cherry on Top. I'm your host, Chris Cherry. Francois, I'm the founder and do a little bit of everything towards the radio and the coffee shop also. And I'm Pauline, I'm uh, the station manager. Same, a little bit of everything. Yeah. Trying to keep uh, Francois sane and, uh, <laughs> and uh, keep the schedule uh, tight. <laughs> uh, my name is Lloyd and I do a bunch of the programming as well as uh, show. Let's start from the beginning. Francois, tell me about just the uh, epiphany of starting the lot. What was going on in your life at that time? So yeah, I was a freelance photographer and videographer and it was kind of dull uh, more and more. I was more and more panicking about the future here in New York. And that's when I saw that little triangle was available for lease, that little triangle in Williamsburg Greenpoint. And I took it as a sign and I took it as an occasion to do something closer to what I love, music. And I think it was bringing my head, it must have been bringing my head somewhere because it really came Directly, I thought online radio would make a lot of sense in that little triangle. And as soon as I got the idea, it was absolutely sure I was doing it. I was doing that. And that's exactly when I went first talked to Lloyd to make sure that I was not crazy and that there was actually room and kind of need somewhere in the community for that. And I think he agreed. Yeah, I agreed. (laughs) (laughs) We had talked about setting it up for a while and I think you and I went silent for a while and then it was just here. Because the thing is that when I started, when I fighted for the lease of that little place, etc. I thought it would take like eh, maybe a month or two months to set it up. Yeah. It literally took more than nine to get all the approval. And that's what a, a lone job where I was alone in my office getting crazy and depressed and super annoyed. And from time to time I would tell Lloyd, no, no, it's still happening. I'm doing this, I'm doing this. Yeah. But then it took way, way more time, almost a year. And then uh, closer, when I realized everything was getting in place, I got back to Lloyd and I was like, okay, be ready. It's gonna, it's gonna <laughs> happen, it's gonna happen. And then we opened in uh, mid-February. When did you get the lease though? Do you remember? Yeah, way before, sadly. Like, like June or July, right? I don't remember the exact date it started because I, did, I negotiated with the landlord so much. Just for the lease, it took more than three months to agree on something. And then it was departments of building, departments of health. Every department of New York City knows about that crazy <laughs> project now. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. It's Christine Renee. You're listening to The Lot Radio. And it is Friday. What was it that you felt was missing from maybe the New York music scene or Brooklyn specifically that the lot had to fill? Personally, you know, I've met so many different people that I wouldn't otherwise because of this place. And I, I, think, I think the community was missing, just like a very strong community. 
the music scene is incredible in New York, but it's kind of any, everybody in its, in its corner, in its club, in its circuits. There are a lot of different uh, circuits. And to create a place where during the day, actually, because it's mainly a day activity. So we're taking all the, the people from the night and giving them a day place to hang out, to come and share outside of the clubs, the, the concert venues, etc. I think that was important also, to, and then to have a real location. So it was a uh, foundation of your idea in order to have like a physical brick and mortar area where people could congregate. I think that was the most important part of the radio station. I would have never done it if it was not that triangle. When I was getting crazy during the nine months, all of my friends were like, just rent another place, then rent a studio in Bushwick or something. But they didn't, it didn't make sense for me. I think the radio is as strong as it is because of the location, because we have a brick and mortar place where people can come and hang out. People being DJs, friends, etc. but also people from the neighborhood because we get all our support from people of the neighborhood coming for a coffee that's how the radio lives it's through little coffees that we serve to everybody uh, during the whole day so I think that's super super important the radio would have not existed without that place and there have been some big names that have come through a guy called Gerald for instance I know is it something that they seem surprised to see have you talked to any of them about their like their reaction to what the lot is main acts and people we highly respect when they come in i think they are impressed by the setup and be just the form already like the the studio is well done i think we put a lot of work into that the view is mind-blowing and we try to to keep a high standard in that and also i think i really hope it's that it's that because the most important part for me is that the project is 100% independent. We are self-funded. We fund ourselves through the little coffee shop that we have. We worked a lot on this. It's a lot of work, but it gives us a strength and a base that we, we, we are free of any uh, branding, any sponsorship or anything. And I think that some, for some of the main act to come and to see a place that's totally independent, totally self-run, etc. They're kind of sensitive to it. They can feel that we all do that for the love of music. There's no question. We all do that and we don't make money out of this. And so I think there's, I hope they're sensitive to that. <coughs> and also a lot of DJs who are coming, all of the DJs who are coming regularly, all the regulars, I think they're sensitive to that too. Hey, this is Paul TDL. You're listening to thelotradio.com. A little duo by the name of Leatherette. The tune called Dog Brush off their new album, which is out next week on Ninja Tune. Got some more exclusives for you. Just keep it locked. My name is Faulty DL. I have a regular show on Wednesdays from 4 to 6 p.m. And I've known uh, Francois. Uh, sort of the organizer behind the Lot Radio for many years, and this was an idea that was floating around in his head for the last two years, maybe a little bit longer, even I'm not sure. And he once told me while we were shopping at a supermarket together, he's like, "Oh, I'm starting this radio station. You got to come through." And I'm like, "Okay, I'm not sure what that means." <laughs> but like Francois gets things done, you know, not without his incredible team. You know, they've created this incredible platform, and I get to come and do basically whatever I want. My show changes like every week. Sometimes it's just Blueberry Records stuff I'm putting out. Sometimes it's uh, just demos that I've been sent that I really like. There's no, there's, there's zero organization put into my show. <laughs> what does the existence of The Lot represent for you? 
And what do you think it means for Brooklyn and New York music in general? Well, I feel like the timing of the lot was incredible because this there was nothing like this here, you know. I was doing actually something on East Village Radio for a while, which I really liked, but this feels like definitely the new generation being given a platform to do radio. For me, it's this great outlet to be able to put my finger on the pulse of dance music in New York City without necessarily going out every night because I meet lots of people here at reasonable hours. <laughs> so I come here and I go to like the shows they do at the church across the street, basically just to like hear new music. So that's sort of what it means for me. Tell me about the relationship with the church. So that started uh, when the lot was completely empty. I was just cleaning that place to make it ready. And I started to notice that the church next to us was getting more and more active. They changed the door, they, I would see the priest more and more. And I had a lot of issue with my internet, with my water, with everything. Every aspect of the project was hell at that time. So one day I went to knock literally at the church just to meet them and see you know, what was up and to present my project. I was really expecting to get like old grumpy priests, really like not nice and being like oh, the radio station with like music but actually I met we met incredible people uh, Father Nicholas and Father Raphael who are like incredible people and they've been helping us a lot uh, by, by giving us water for the coffee shop helping us with the internet etc and because for them I think they were happy to have something in that little triangle in front of the church before it was a dump so it was nothing it was a no man's land here it was in between streets there's nothing and so for them it's it's fun to have some activity to have young people hanging out all the time and i think they were happy about that so it's a win-win situation and since then it grew really i think we have a, a, a good friendship with them and we're helping them for example uh fundraising for the organ that they're trying to renovate it's actually ongoing it's almost done we did a series of concerts to um raise funds and it works super well and we're going we're going to continue after the organ is there we're definitely continuing even doing we, we really want to do more events in that church i mean i i still think friar nick needs a show <laughs> yeah that's the future of the radio friar nick's talk show i am here with friar nicholas spano father rayfield's volunkevich when, uh, when you found out that it was going to be uh, a music radio station, did you have any sort of reservations? Not at all. It was wonderful to, to know that somebody wanted to take an interest in this lot because prior to it, uh, it was unkept in all areas of that word. And so with Francois coming, uh, it's improved it. And truly what he's doing as far as the radio station and the coffee kiosk uh, it doesn't affect what the church is doing. If anything, it really kind of enhances it because it, it just brings the community together. And that's what we're trying to do. So you've seen a, a positive effect in this community um, in general? Father Raphael put it very, um, very politely in saying it was unkept. Um, it was a public eyesore. I mean, there were broken down cars, there was garbage. It, it was horrible. Um, so the positive effect has been astronomical. The lot radio really came into existence to allow musicians, composers, artists on the fringe of the music scene a place to showcase their creations. You know, the mission on our end came into existence as a way to reach out to the same people on the fringe of the church circle to give them a place to also worship and to pray. So the two missions, I think, go together 
exceptionally well. What comments, if any, have you received from your congregation about uh, what they've seen going on here? Well, for the most part, it's been very positive. Um, you know, change is difficult, I think, for a lot of people. The gentrification of Greenpoint in Williamsburg is something that's impacting our congregation and other congregations in the neighborhood um, because the demographic is changing. Um, people that once were here now are no longer able to stay here because of rising rent, rising taxes. For the most part, our congregation is very supportive. Um, probably 95% of them are supportive of what we're doing to try to reach out to the neighborhood. Have you seen any of your congregation at any of these concerts that you posted? There's been a few. We even had a group of sisters that came from one of the local parishes. Really? Uh -huh. <laughs> uh -huh. It was uh, techno music, a little ambient music, and so I don't know how much they really you know, got into it, but again, it just showed their support for what we're doing here. As much as a DIY spirit and dedication to artistic freedom is at the core of the lot, community seems equally, if not more, foundational. So it only made sense that we hear from some of the station's regular DJs and let them share what they love about the lot. My name's Christine Renee, and I love the objective that Francois has put forth, the, his focus of having um, this platform that is free form and accepting of what everybody wants to do um, encourages me to just be here and and yeah I love I love having people come by and I love just showing up and having a coffee with my kids or um, yeah I come by all the time. My name is Ben Steidel. I run a record store called Co-op 87. For me the lot is great like on a personal level it's really nice just to be able to DJ for two hours anywhere, you know, where there might be people listening. It's it's fun for me. It's something that I, I really enjoy, and I I get I like the feedback. You know, there's the chat room, and people are asking you what the track is and stuff like that. And it's really nice to be able to do that. It's actually like a really beautiful community thing that doesn't have a sinister agenda, and it doesn't seem like it's at severe risk of just all getting shut down immediately. I'm Lindsay. I'm a DJ. I live in New York, so I've been doing my show since March and it's been really awesome. <laughs> it's a great place for all those DJs who aren't big enough to do different radio, like bigger radio shows. And I think that perspective is important because there's less pressure. It's just, you know, people playing stuff that they really like. So if you're into discovering new music um, or if there's someone that you really like that's not huge, then you can tune into their show and kind of get their perspective. So this is kind of like soul cleansing to be able to come and play exactly what I like. And I think that's probably what a lot of these other DJs like about it. My name is Barbie Bertish. Together with Paul Raphael, we run Love Injection Fanzine. It's given so many diverse music lovers a home not just talking about the DJs, but people that live in the neighborhood, that bring their kids, uh, the church across the street. Um, it's a really great place for people to gather. And you know, it's grown organically and you know, even Jouse Peterson supporting it. Um, I think it's a place where just creativity brews and the community gets the support it deserves. So to have something like this in the neighborhood is just priceless. What I love about it is that it's now the point of unity between scenes in Brooklyn that would otherwise be segregated. And I really believe that it's an accurate picture of what's happening here right now. 
Thanks to everyone who spoke to us over in New York. And remember to tune into The Lot Radio at thelotradio.com. On November 16th, Flying Lotus flew from LA to London for the premiere of Royal, his debut as a filmmaker. Flylo is of course known as the artist behind a string of visionary albums for Warp Records, but it's been a long-term dream of his to make serious moves in the film world, something he's been intensely focused on in the recent past. His friend David Firth, who you'll probably know as the creator of the unsettling internet animation series Salad Fingers, has been teaching Flylo the ropes. And as part of the evening's program, Firth presented two new films called Cream and Umbilical World. The event also served as the launch of Brain Feeder Films. And if the collection of works shown this evening are anything to go by, the studio should be turning out some of the most challenging and deeply disturbing films you're likely to come across. I met them at Regent Street Cinema on the evening of the event. So, uh, yeah, welcome to the show. Hey, what up, dog? Yeah, you're rich for Spain. Oh, what up, homie? Uh, this is the, I guess, the UK launch of Brain Feeder Films. Uh, I just wanted to say if you guys are uh, easily offended by grotesque moving images, get the fuck out now. Uh, it's not that bad. We'll see. All right, we'll see you guys after that shit. Okay. So maybe we could just begin by you uh, talking us through the program for this evening. Oh, yeah. First up, we have David Firth's Cream, a short film, followed by Royal, a short film by yours truly. Then we have Umbilical World, a feature-length collection by me. That's David. You debuted uh, Royal at the Sundance Next Festival in August, that was right? Yeah. How was that yeah. experience for you? It was it was so fun. I had a great time, actually. It was it was um you know, so much time and, and work and energy and money and everything gone into making that thing, so it was nice to let it out, you know, and just to unleash it on people and to have them react the way they did it was all it was all worth it after that you know it just felt it felt really good it was yeah needed that how was that reaction they're pretty vocal <laughs> they're pretty loud shouty and laughy it's exactly what i was hoping for so yeah i'm grateful for that um i think for me one of perhaps the most illuminating things from the outside uh, looking at the screening was the fact that you gave out buff bags or there was some <laughs> some information conveyed on bath bags maybe that was a, a playful gesture on your behalf but it mm -hmm. would point to uh kind of an extreme content matter let's say yeah exactly that that just gets you ready you know i need to get people ready for this actually because it's not you know it's there are some things in the program tonight that might offend people <laughs> or disturb people so i think you know you see a bark bag you know Okay, um, all right. <laughs> What's the synopsis? Um, the synopsis is, uh, it's a very crazy-ass movie. No, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to spoil it. 
I know. I don't want to say too much. Uh, you know, it's it's weird. Maybe Dave will tell me tell you what it is. Yeah, I don't want to spoil it either. But it's like a it's like a love story, really. It's just a love story with a sort of crazy twist. Very mischievous love story. So you put out the fact that uh, you have these characters, Missy and Kenneth, mm-hmm. who are kind of leading the tale. Yeah. Um, maybe tell us a bit about them as characters and kind of the development process and, and kind of dreaming them up. Yeah, what happened was I was uh, I was in New York and I just had this weird image of of this this cheerleader girl, very pretty overachiever type girl who's having sex with her brother, and uh, I was just wondering what they were doing tonight. I just started thinking about like what are they up to right now? What are they doing? I just start writing. And then, like on my, yeah, I was I was in in New York and I was headed home to L.A. and I just wrote the whole bit on my journey home. And I was like, oh, that's what they're up to. <laughs> that's what they're up to. Uh, you'd also mentioned that it was a, a gif. Yeah. It was it was you and Tom York. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah. So I was uh, I, I was on Twitter and I saw this gif going around of me and Tom York DJing and it was really it was really hilarious. I I was driving and I pulled over and watched this thing and it was just it kept going and going and going and I was like this is fucking hilarious. And then I thought to myself I was like man this is this is you know made very easily. No one had to do anything too crazy to make this animation work there's just like a couple zooms or whatever like close-ups so like man i could do that and um so i just started started fiddling around with some stuff and then you know some ideas started to form and you know it became concrete and then i just started calling david every day <laughs> story takes place you know i'd say months after a giant earthquake hit southern california and it's kind of the a story about the the survived you know david what's your involvement been up until this point well it started with me i do a voice in royal and um you know i thought i was just going to do any old voice but it turned out to be very specific (laughs) and it was refined a few times before it got there but I think I found the right voice eventually. We just made it a little bit more British. Some of the parts, you know, just made it sound a little bit more like he would actually say it. Yeah, I was trying an American thing at first. Uh, it's not very comfortable for me to do that. It doesn't sound natural. It is funny, though. But you guys have been uh, working together from a technical perspective for, for some years now. Would that be accurate? Yeah, we, we started um, with the Ready or Not video that I did for um, You're Dead. Was it? Was that the album? Yeah, that's the album itself. <laughs> <laughs> that's the last one. Shit. I'm forgetting my shit. No, yeah, we, we worked on that. And then, um, you know, I I, uh, I just kept bothering this guy because I, I wanted to learn animation. And uh, when I first got inspired to make Kuso, it was uh, because of this animation idea. And I went to him and was like, please, just make me your student. Show me how to do stuff. <laughs> show me how to make cartoon I need to learn this how was the process of getting to grips with animation for you I mean maybe thinking back to your formative days of learning computer music were the similarities in the process did you feel about the same? writing I'm interested in this um, learning curve for you let's say yeah animation well animation is just fucking hard man it's hard as shit 
I just wanted to make music like just it's just so much easier <laughs> it's just like so much easier to make music than make cartoons and make films and shit why is that it's, I mean I can imagine but why is it for you it's easier because it doesn't require uh, much help and I can I have like more of an instant gratification whereas with a film it, it takes a long time for an idea to become a thing and it takes a lot of people and a lot of talent it becomes a huge collaboration whereas music I can do alone or with a, you know a couple people technically I can I feel like I can make music but I find it really difficult to describe with music like I do with film so it's almost like I feel exactly the same as you but the other way around let's let's uh let's let this go on the record that David worked on cream for like a year diligently diligently every day chipped away at this short film that's like what 10 minutes yeah. It's 10 minutes. It took a whole year to do on his own. And, you know, it's like, he's over here talking about making music is difficult, you know. It's like, yo, this shit is crazy. I, I can't wait for people to actually see this because I think even for animators who see it, they're always inspired by it. And I think that's always a crazy sign. Cream wasn't supposed to take a year. It was just supposed to be like a, a little project between projects. The thing is with After Effects, it just offers you this this platform where you can constantly refine what you're doing more than you can with like just drawn animation so you can always just look and see i could add a shadow to this or i could i could change this background make it more 3d i could make this more and there's so many tools in there and you can just it can just never end i could spend another year making it even more human looking and it's just i don't know there's something obsessive in there and that's why it took so long to make Basically, it's a it's a cream that fixes everything, and that's the the overall concept. Has the uh, idea of a cream that fixes everything uh, become more resonant in the past week? Would you say? Yes, it's funny. I, a, a lot of the stuff that we're working on just feels way more relevant now, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel good. At the, <laughs> you know, it doesn't feel good at all. It's like really, uh, really, really. Uh, discouraging time in a lot of ways but have you thought much about how this might affect artistic communities in the coming years yeah it's gonna be good you know the, the art's gonna be good he's gonna make art great again at least <laughs> everybody got cozy off the obama shit so like at least the art is gonna be all like edgy and in your face again say if I was to characterize some of your video work over the years you're someone who I think people are used to the idea that you're gonna push the envelope let's say or draw uh, draw strong reactions yeah what is it that draws you to these extremes would you say man I don't know I don't know what draws me to the extremes I think it's just I just want to see things that are gonna make me laugh you know I think that that's what I want to do with films I want to do things that are just silly and make you forget about the crazy world we're in I think it's just like an escapism thing really but I'm also just I'm, I'm here to push it I guess you know I don't know I just always want to have that experience for myself at sure. least you know and share it 
I mean, do you, I mean, I guess this is a question to both of you. Um, do you ever um, have any concerns that you're kind of in danger of being pegged as kind of shock value artists or kind of known as the, as the unsettling guys or the gross out guys or something along those lines? Sometimes you can do something and it, it feels like there's nothing else there than shock. And then you just have to kind of review that and say, why did I do that? Uh, is there anything else you can grab onto there? But usually if there's humor involved, I think it kind of softens it and says, you know, this is not to put you at unease. It's actually to express something that's quite interesting to you and showing that it's not too serious at the same time. Mm. Uh, if you ever do, I mean, I've done one, a couple of things that haven't had any humor to them and they've been quite shocking and it doesn't feel right afterwards. It feels like I've just said, it's, it's almost like a like an angry outburst as a teenager or something. Whereas you can be a bit more mature than that and, and make it enjoyable and funny and at the same time it doesn't feel like it's just, you know, a finger up to the, uh, to the viewer. Making movies is hard as shit. You know, it's, you have to wake up hella early and, you know, yell at people and, you know, making a movie is hard. So I want to make some stuff that's going to make me laugh while we're doing it. You know, I want to be able to have fun with the stuff and, you know, the best part of working on this thing so far has been, you know, being around these crew people who are having a blast and they've done this stuff for years and years, but they've never done the kind of stuff that we're doing. And it it makes them just, you know, explode with laughter and they're, they're smiling and that's the first audience right there. If they're having a good time, then the people watching it might have a good time too. So this evening is doubling as the launch for Brain Feeder Films. Um, what kind of led the decision to go this extra mile and you know encompass like a you know studio element to it? I mean, one of them is, is actually just having David right here. He's been someone that I've always been inspired by, but have like yet to see him like really, you know, do what he's meant to do. I think as far as like his reach and you know. Uh, I I just wanted help. That was where it all started. I was just like, dude, let me just help you however I can. Let me let me let's let's get people seeing this stuff. Let's you know get a TV show going. Let's you know figure it out. Let's get your merch together. Let's you know I, I just I believe in what he's doing so much that you know I just want to I want to see as a fan of his. I want to see his work go farther. So what could the um, next couple of years look like for Brain Feeder Films potentially? Um. Yeah, more films and maybe a, a Salad Fingers TV show, some shit like that. Yeah. That'd be great, right? Anyone wants it. It's good that Brain Feeder are, you know, behind everything that I want to do. It's not too shocking or it's not too dark. If anything, it's not dark enough. I think there's a lot of potential. I think that, uh, you know, this this night's gonna kick off a lot of things. I have a good feeling about it. Advisor. Matthew Benjamin, who's known by the aliases Bushwhacker and Just Be, has been a successful DJ and producer for around 20 years. 
He's traveled the globe, played most of the world's best clubs, and he's produced plenty of hit records, both solo and as part of the duo Leo and Bushwhacker. But for a significant amount of this time, Benjamin has been what could be described as a functioning drug addict. For many years, his problems formed a secretive backdrop to his professional and social life. But a year or so ago, he completely hit rock bottom and decided it was time to get help. In this very personal and honest interview, he explains how working in the famously hedonistic dance music scene provided a smokescreen for his addiction. And we hear how he ultimately confronted his issues before it was too late. Well, Matthew, um, thanks for coming in today. I really appreciate it. Um, kind of inviting me. Yeah, I mean, especially as the uh, as the nature of our discussion today, um, you know, something that doesn't often get talked about. You know, something that comes with um, certain social stigmas and complications. So, yeah, really appreciate you coming in. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. So, to break it down a little bit, in terms of you first taking drugs, are we talking about something? standard you know the way that most young people would get into taking drugs you know you're a teenager and you start smoking pot or something along those lines absolutely i mean you know in in that respect uh i i guess my my own personal story is quite similar to to a lot of people's you know it, it was trying drink out of you know the grandfather's sort of uh, drink drinks cupboard it was smoking a joint behind the bike sheds at school um, you know, magic mushrooms on the playing fields, sort of in the later years of high school, and then uh, I left school um, in the summer of 1988, and it, I got a job in a disco in a disco hire shop in Kentish Town, and um, through doing that, I was uh, I was meeting lots of people that were coming in and hiring equipment, and uh, and the Rat Pack came in every week, and they were hiring lights for their for their warehouse parties that they were putting on and and they'd come in week in and week out and and invite me and my friend who was also working there to these warehouse parties and and then uh you know one day I went to one and uh went to my first acid house party uh, in an empty swimming pool and that kind of that was that was my entry into into the dance music scene as as it is still now with me but that's that's when kind of you know I I, I got involved in the revolution took some LSD, came home at midday the next day to, to a very angry mother and told her that she didn't understand and that I knew what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And, you know, that was the kind of what I thought was the good bit, you know. Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. So presumably when you got to do this professionally, um, you know, in terms of drug consumption, it was just a kind of a continuation of that almost, of, of the early days and these things going hand in hand with the lifestyle. Very much so. I mean, I, I remember uh, I had my 18th birthday party at Rage at Heaven and Kevin Millins had given me the whole of the upstairs, um, the, the, the the back room, the lounge and, and lots of tickets for my, my friends and... I'd gone back to somebody's house afterwards and someone gave me, had given me a wrap of Coke for, you know, on my birthday. And I'll never forget, you know, another DJ saying to me, you know, be careful with that stuff. You know, you want to be careful with that. I remember doing it and thinking, oh, it hasn't really done anything much to me, you know. Um, but no, for me, you know, it, it really was... <sighs> Being part of, of the whole Acid House explosion and, and the Summer of Love, 
with my connection with the music, with with the DJ and produ- producing, with the whole scene, with the whole loved up vibe, it, it, it was incredible. And regardless of, of the journey that I've gone through and the, and the dark times that came later on in life, I, I don't have uh, any regrets about being part of that being a massive massive bit well totally being my life for such a long time you know but um they, they say that addiction is a progressive disease you know and uh it was a, a very kind of gradual slope for me I, I i i didn't really realize that it was kind of happening until until quite quite a long way down the line really and yeah no it wasn't till the sort of the early noughties that uh when, when my ex girlfriend sort of threatened to leave me and said that like I was doing too much, too much, too many drugs, and that I needed to sort myself out, otherwise she was going to um, leave me, and and that's when I really realised that you know things things were going pretty wrong. no kind of real cut-off point for me and it didn't become obvious to me that that I had a massive problem I think partly because uh, nobody told me and I was kind of lost in the moment a lot of the time do you I, think they knew I think that maybe that maybe I wasn't hearing it maybe I wasn't really picking up on it um another member of my family had had some problems as well and and their problems were in my head significantly worse than mine so that took quite a lot of the focus away from what I was doing and you know my my substances of choice you know in the early days were more ecstasy and uh, and theirs was more kind of crack cocaine and alcohol and it I always felt, oh well, I haven't got a problem. You know, they they've got a problem. I'm I'm okay. But then as time went on, I felt like no one was seeing my problems because all the focus was over there. And basically, it you know, it was me waiting for somebody else to pick up on 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 the problem rather than recognizing that there was one and trying to do something about it myself. And then you know, I it got masked by the success as well because. I was, you know, doing a lot of gigs and, and traveling around to play in pack clubs and was being looked after um, to a very high standard. And it was very easy for me to function as a functioning addict. You know, I could go to work wasted, you know, and people would appear to be enjoying that, the fact that I was. You know, whether they were or they were just being polite, I will never know because it, it seems like a long time ago now. But um, it was very easy. It, I mean, one of the the difficulties, I think, of having addiction problems in this industry is the fact that we're working in, in one of the places where people actually go to recreationally use drugs. It is progressive and as time went on the negative impact 
of drugs in every area of my life w- was a lot more prominent and even with the DJing you know when I you know I, I would regularly you know I'd play every month at, at the end and there was many occasions that I can remember turning up to do my gig at the club with no sleep from the night before I, I may well have DJed somewhere and stayed up all day and you know I'd get to the club and I wouldn't you know, I'd have so massive social anxiety and paranoia. I wouldn't want to be around people. I'd go and hide in the office until literally two minutes before I had to play. And then once I started playing, I could communicate through music. I could, you know, get away with being around people because I didn't have to actually talk to them, you know. And 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 then by the time I'd finished playing, I was kind of lost in the moment again but uh the same applies to recording as well i mean taking drugs and and the recording studio never really went hand in hand uh for me it took my creative soul away you know over a period of time you know i'd i'd end up either not wanting to go to work or just staring at the screen and having a complete blank um which was bad working on my own and really bad working with my partner because Obviously, he was on a completely different wavelength and I was trying to be the engineer, trying to be the producer, trying to be creative. But at the same time, you know, sort of trying to fake being kind of sober and and just waiting for the hours to go by till the day ended so I could go home, you know, and it was very destructive period. So um, this period that we're discussing, um, how long would you estimate you had gone on like that? It was over a period of time on and off because I did first go to to some meetings to some NA and AA meetings to to find a way to sort myself out and clean up my act and from about 2005 2004 2005 you know I started going to meetings and and I I got various periods of of clean time so there would be a lot of positivity and a lot of uh, progress again, but falling off the wagon was very difficult because I'd I'd have a lot of guilt around it, uh, a lot of guilt and shame, and also I guess each time that that did happen, it did become it did become progressively harder to be able to sort of pull myself together and and to function and to work and you know it it, it, it things got. Um, Things things were it was it was a very difficult period uh, when we were working together, and you know became when you say uh, we you mean when I was working with Leo yeah it was a very difficult period for for the times that I was you know back back in a in a dark place, um, I feel very privileged that I had Leo as my partner because he was always very understanding when things things had gone wrong and he was uh very supportive and gave me a lot of hope and a lot of kind of faith in in myself and in sorting things out and a huge amount of patience with me as well so so that was really important i struggled a lot with with my problem i think because i was quite isolated and quite insular with it all towards the end of of those days and nobody really knew what I was doing. So tell us about, um, you know, when the time finally came to 
properly do something about it you know how did you come to that realization and what happened i mean this this is you know it's not an easy thing to talk about you know but uh things kind of came to a head at the beginning sort of the, the spring of uh of of 2015 and uh i ended up just at home all the time using um not sleeping not eating not leaving the house not leaving my bedroom a lot of the time uh not listening to music not watching tv not talking to anybody not even on the computer just literally wasting away and incredibly depressed feeling suicidal uh you know, I can remember the times when I did kind of leave the house. I can remember going and sitting with friends for, for a nice lunch by the beach and uh, trying not to kind of burst out crying because I was convinced it was the last time I was going to see them again because I was absolutely sure that I was on on a path to 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 destruction and death. You know, it was, it was a really heavy time and... Um, my birthday came around. Uh, had a, had a party in Ibiza at the end of July, and uh, I couldn't. They couldn't even wake me up to go to my own birthday lunch because I'd 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 passed out from being awake from from the days before that. And uh, I did the party, and then then I went away straight afterwards with with um, for a short holiday with my son and with some friends to Sardinia, and, and I decided as soon as I got there that I needed to take myself out of the loop and get some help and go to rehab because I I felt so scared that I just wasn't sorting this out myself. I wasn't going to be able to do this on my own. No one was going to come to my rescue that I felt like I'd been, I felt like I'd been sitting around waiting for someone to come and find me and rescue me. And I kind of, I smelt the coffee and realized that, the only person that could sort me out is me, you know. I took myself out of the loop and got on the plane to Thailand and went to to rehab initially for four weeks, but I extended to six weeks because I realised at the end of three weeks that I was only just starting to get my head clear. And so I spent six weeks in, in Chiang Mai in, in a rehab centre and I, I came back on the 22nd of September to Ibiza and... Um, straight to space to play at a party but I, I I can safely say I think it's the best thing I've ever done um, taking myself out of the loop I, I, I couldn't see the wood through the trees with the situation that I was in and it had been two years of, of madness leading up to that with with particularly with cocaine and ketamine but it, it had got to the point where I didn't really care what I was taking anymore I just didn't want to feel real I didn't want to feel my feelings and it was uh it was it was dark very very dark so what have the last 12 months been like for you the last 12 months have been <laughs> an amazing period uh but not something that i'm complacent about because i know how easy it is to slip up but because i took that time out last year and learned about 
my triggers and learned about boundaries and learned about my core beliefs and the fact that a series of events lead me to lead me to feel very very root feelings about myself the world is out to get me or I'm not good enough or various things like that and time and time again when when I see things happening now I realize that that this isn't true I can challenge those I can challenge those thoughts and those beliefs and 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 see that this is a temporary situation that is going to pass um that's relevant to the last 12 months because there's been loads of times um still now where things things come up for me during the day which could quite easily make me want to go and use again um i feel quite blessed that my it's a weird thing to say but i feel quite blessed that my experience was was so bad um and that i i, I could recognize that i was kind of just losing everything in every area of my life you know it affected my work it affected my family it affected my health it affected my social skills it affected my finances if it, it affected everything last 12 months has been great i've been you know i've been physically fit i, I you know I, I last year i went around the whole of ibiza in a kayak bicycle and hiking to raise money for the homeless um i've been writing lots of music again i've been doing lots of work in the studio um i've done about 30 gigs in ibiza this summer uh residency every wednesday at sankey's and, and my own parties at pikes and playing at space a few times and all sorts of other things and then touring a bit as well how difficult has it been to change your relationship with the nightclub environment well I, I, this is this is the thing you see i I, in an ideal world, right now, I would only like to do two gigs a month. And that's not because I don't love the music or the parties. You can't beat that feeling of playing great music to a crowd of people that are responding. That that side of it's great, but I find when I'm in that environment a lot, I start to, start to feel out of sorts and I start to get too tired. So... It's affected my relationship in 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 a way that I'd I'd rather have less work, less income, but more of a life and and more early nights, more of a healthy lifestyle. It's definitely doable, clean and sober, our lifestyle as as DJs. You know, it it, it is. Um, I just I, I I feel that boundaries are really important for me, and I say no to quite a lot of gigs because. I feel that they're not necessarily going to be safe places for me to be yeah, hanging out in. Yeah. So it's like you've got a good thing going, you know, you've got some momentum, you know, you've had some success in your sobriety, but I guess the idea of pushing it too much or, you know, triggering something in you is is kind of the is kind of the danger. There's there's a saying in meetings we talk about in in the AA meetings we talk about something known as HALT, which is hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, and they're four really common triggers. And you know I tend to find that if I'm tired and hungry and lonely, I get angry, and then when I've got all four of those things going on, the chances of me going out and doing something stupid are a lot higher. So 
I prefer to not be in those environments that much anymore. And it's unavoidable, you know, like, you know, with, with, with DJs, you know, we're going to be in those environments, but I don't do the after parties now. I don't do, I don't really go out that much when I'm not working. You know, I, like, I spent the whole season in Ibiza only really going out when I was, when I was DJing. But I have a, a personal rule myself, which I find really helps, which is that, if I find myself in a place for more than 10 minutes, like at a, a bit of a loose end questioning why I'm there, I just go home. Sure. You know, I don't just hang around anymore. Having been through what you have um, and, you know, obviously gained some clarity uh, on things, do you feel like um, there is a fairly big network uh, within dance music of people who have been through similar things and are now kind of uh, doing the industry sober? You know, I do. I, I think it's... Um, I know quite a few people uh, that are in in the same je- decade generation as me who, who are successful DJs and, and producers and entertainers and and who have come into into sobriety quite recently and are, are working the program and and it's been a life changing experience for them and a real joy for me to see that's happening to people. I think that the the hardest thing is is going in the first place, I th- and I think it's because there's a massive amount of ego attached to being an entertainer. And I think as an entertainer, you need an ego in some ways to be, you know, it's, it's part of of the mask of what you're doing as an entertainer, you know. But I think that some people would find it very find it very hard to admit that they've got a problem, and um, I think that that. I think that some people find it very hard to ask for help as well, you know. So how are you feeling about the future at this moment in time? Ah, the future. I'm feeling really good about the future now. I I, I feel like, I feel like I lost some serious momentum within my, um, within my own personal career due to due to my use, using and due to getting myself into a very dark place and then having to patch up the damage and, and, and get back on track. Um, you know, I, I do feel that that affected me a lot, but I, I also feel that as part of my journey, having time away from from the whole scene and from everything and being taken into to a place where I saw other possibilities about life and ways of life and interacting and you know uh, group activities and all all sorts of other stuff gave me a, a lot more perspective on how to live because I think for a very long time I couldn't see further than the next week weekend um and anything further than that just seemed like a sort of an inevitable doom and gloom because i'll be like oh you know i'm getting older and i'm still taking drugs and i'm you know i'm not working as much and you know how am i going to do why why am i not doing this and how am i going to do this and you know uh, it, it, it was you know it was quite a scary place to be in but whereas now I feel really connected with myself and grounded. I feel like I've got my feet on the floor, but I've got my head up in the clouds again with my creative side and I'm really enjoying just letting letting my energy flow again now and I'm enjoying being able to talk to people properly and you know the, my my using affected my moods a lot um and isolated me and cut me off from a lot of people, you know. Um I feel like I've managed to sort of get myself out of a very dark place and I'd, I'd like to be of use and of help to other people you know I don't want to be 
this guy that's just stuck in a dark room, like wasting away. It's it's not what I'm here for. No. Now is the time. Thank you to Matthew Benjamin for being strong enough to share his difficult story with the world and thank you for listening to The Hour. Join us for the show's next edition where RA's editorial team will be looking back on 2016, telling us about their favourite records and artists of the year.